Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, we'll be continuing our Advent series from the book of Matthew. But before we get to that, like so many other organizations around us this time of year, we would love for you to consider making a year-end gift to the Harbor Churches. Your gift at this time of year will help to ensure that we can continue to bring you the quality content that you've come to expect from us week after week. And so you can easily make a donation to Harbor Churches by visiting harborchurches.org forward slash give. And for those of you that will make a gift here at the end of this year, we just want to say a heartfelt thank you. And now let's head over to Pastor Tierra as she brings us a message from the book of Matthew that shows us some of the unlikely ways the news of the birth of Jesus spread around the world. And now here's Pastor Tierra. Good morning. My name is Tierra. I am one of the pastors here at South Harbor. If I've not yet met you, um, if I've not yet met you, I'd love to meet you. I'd love to connect with you over coffee or tea these days. Uh, <laughs> and um, I am, I'm pretty stoked because we are continuing a sermon series that we started a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we are making our way through the book of Matthew, uh, and we are going to spend an impressive amount of time in the book of Matthew over the next year as something like a 55-week sermon series. I think it's the longest sermon series ever done by a church. It's not a competition, but if it were. Uh, so, um, so we were camping out in the book of Matthew because we believe that there's something, um, something about the gospel story, something about what the early writers were trying to communicate us, to us about who Christ is and why he came into the world. And we want to spend our time immersing ourselves in that story and every single detail of that story. And so we're sitting with Matthew, uh, Matthew in particular, which was written by a guy that we, we believe, we written by Matthew, one of the original disciples of Jesus, uh, the original 12. And Matthew, as you may have learned from maybe being with us before, or even as we've been covering the story so far, Matthew is not exactly like the other disciples. In fact, Matthew is the least likely disciple. And because of that, um, because of that, he tells the story of Jesus's life, this gospel of Matthew, um, in the least likely way. Uh, we discovered in the first week of our series that Matthew begins his account of Jesus's life with a genealogy, uh, and a genealogy that doesn't just tell us all the best stories and all the best moments. Uh, the way Matthew tells the story, Jesus is descended from a line of sinful, broken kings who nearly destroy everything that they put their hands on. But not just a line of broken, sinful kings. Jesus is also descended from this group of, of Gentile women, something like four Gentile women who are peppered throughout the lineage of Jesus, who bring their own scandals to the story of the Messiah, of the Savior of the world. And then Matthew continues the story with the story of a poor, engaged peasant couple named Joseph and his, and his fiancée, Mary, who is with child. Matthew does not shy away from the details. He does not mince words. He does not mince stories. Matthew goes right in for all of the details. Adultery, murder, prostitutes, unwed mothers, all of it. And you got to ask, why does Matthew include the stories that most of us would have a little dignity not to include, not only with people that we know, but especially with strangers? Is Matthew just being provocative? Is he just being salacious? Like, does he want his gospel to stand out along the other three accounts of Jesus' life? 
life. Or maybe Matthew is like the, the office gossip, or he's the gossip amongst the disciples. He's the person going around getting dirt on all the other people. Or maybe Matthew is writing the first century version of the Inquirer. Maybe, maybe what he's publishing is a tabloid magazine. <laughs> what is Matthew doing? One theory is that Matthew is writing a very earthy, very raw, very honest account of the Savior of the world. And in doing so, showing us the God who would stop at nothing to meet us, not just in the very best of human stories, the ones that make it onto the cover of Time or Sports Illustrated, but also the very worst, the very worst of stories, the very worst of scenarios, the very worst of human affairs. But not just the God who meets us in our stories, the God who meets us, as we discover in today's text, in our questions. Matthew is painting a picture of the God who meets us in our questions. And we all have questions. Life has a way of putting us in situations where we have questions. And sometimes those questions are are pretty whimsical or philosophical. Maybe some of you have asked a question something like this, like, uh, can God make a rock that he can't lift? How many of you have asked that question before or heard that question before? (laughs) A couple of you. Uh, Or maybe maybe there are questions that have been drilled into your head um, since you were a kid or, or even as an adult as you were doing catechism questions like, what is your only hope in life and death? Or maybe there are questions that emerge out of new situations that you find yourself in. Questions like, will I find friends in this new school or in this new neighborhood or, or in this new community? Will I, have, will I have really close colleagues in this new workplace that I'm in? Or questions like, like how, how do I figure out what to do with my life or what it is that God is calling me to? And, and what happens if the thing that I'm doing that pays the bills is not exactly the thing that God is calling me to do with my life? Or what happens if I don't have the money to pay for the education and the training for the thing that God is calling me to do with my life? Questions emerge out of our lives sometimes. How can I be the best parent to this little person that God has entrusted me with? I know several of you who have been asking that question this season as you welcome children into the world. Or questions like, what do I do after I've been laid off from the job that I've had for over a decade? Or questions like, who am I after the loss of a parent or a spouse? What is my identity after a person that I love and who has played such a huge role in my life passes away? But sometimes these questions emerge from somewhere else. Not just from philosophical, whimsical debates that we're having with our friends, not just from new situations that we find ourselves in, not even just from the catechism that we learned when we were kids. Sometimes those questions emerge from somewhere so deep within us that they almost scare us when they come out of our mouths. Questions like, is God really good? Questions like, who do I think God is if the cancer doesn't go into remission? Questions like, did God hear the prayers even though the divorce still happened? Questions like, what if the addiction gets the best of him or her despite all of my best efforts? Questions like, why is the character of some Christians, and dare I even say some Christian leaders, so far away from the character of the Christ they proclaim? Questions like, if God is really good, God is really trustworthy. Why would he allow tragedy to just rip through my life? Is God trustworthy with everything? Is God as good as the songs we sing say he is? And what does any of it mean? And who is God in the midst of that? Life has a funny way 
of presenting us with circumstances that prompt us to ask questions, questions of ourselves, questions of God, questions of the people in our community. And if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we're afraid to ask those questions out loud because we're afraid of what people might think of us. We're afraid maybe of what God might think of us if we were to ask those questions out loud. And yet, I'm comforted by the words of Paul to the church at Rome when Paul says to them, uh, he says to them, um, when we are at our lowest points, when we are at our weakest points, the spirit of God dwelling within us literally collects our sighs and collects our groans and, and dare I even say collects our unformed, unworded questions and literally prays them to God for us. God has a way of providentially ordering our lives in such a way that even the questions that we have prompt new moments and new opportunities for discovery. As we see in today's text, there are several people who are asking questions, and all of them have different responses to the questions that are being prompted to them by life situations that they find themselves in. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, picking up in verse 1, and we'll see if we can put together a model of sorts for what to do with the questions that we encounter in our own lives. So Matthew begins, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So I'm going to pause here for a second because in these two tiny verses, we get introduced to multiple characters, and they're both really important for unpacking our story today. Uh, the first I'm going to start with, the, um, the wise men in the story, or if you remember the Greek, uh, what are they called? Magi. Yeah, they're called Magi. Uh, so we are still piecing together who the Magi are, but there's a couple of pieces of historical data that kind of help us to understand who they are. And the first, um, the first is a map. Um, literally, uh, the Magi come from the east, and during the first century, as in all centuries, the east is literally to the east. Uh, and so if you notice, Judah, Jerusalem is to the left here, to the west. To the east is Babylon, it's Persia, it's Media, it's all these these kind of nations to the right or to the east. Um, and if you know the story well, you know that all of those nations, they're so close together, and they're literally fighting each other all the time, conquering each other, trying to take each other's land, um, trying to establish dominance um, as a world empire. Um, and since we're looking at the map, we actually encounter the wise men for the first time, not in the New Testament, but actually in the Old Testament, uh, during a period known as the exile, which is the period when God's people were exiled from the land of, from the land of their, their, their homeland. Uh, ten of the tribes go to Assyria. That's the northern kingdom. You see Assyria kind of top center of the map. And then two of the tribes, the southern tribes, go over to Babylon. Well, Babylon eventually gets conquered by Media which eventually gets conquered by Persia. Um, so they're kind of all mixed in there together. Um, the people are so close together, they're literally interrelated at times um, as you kind of look through the lineages of some of the rulers. Uh, so they're coming from the east, uh, and we encounter this group of wise men. Uh, we, we, under, we hear about them from the text. Uh, they are actually summoned by the king, uh, who summons a group of enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. And then the text says, um, he said to the wise men of Babylon, <coughs> he says to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and will have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in 
all of Babylon in the kingdom. So all the, all the diviners and astrologers and enchanters, they're summoned by the king to interpret some writing. This happens all the time. There's a dream, there's a writing, there's a strange phenomena, and the king summons this group of wise men or magi to tell him what it all means. Um, and this group, as it turns out, can't actually figure out what it says, but there's a guy who can, and his name is Daniel. Uh, Daniel actually ends up being able to interpret the writing, um, as in other cases throughout his story. Uh, and he he ends up being the person that all of the wise men in the East report to. Uh, he becomes their boss and the third highest ruler in Babylon, if you remember the story. Uh, and, and eventually, because of this, because of the, the location on the map, a lot of historians and scholars basically seem to support this idea that the Magi in our story, as we're reading it from Matthew, are essentially a subclass of eventually, eventually Persian priests, basically. They're Persian priests, um, they're Persian mystics, they are Persian um, astronomers and astrologers. They interpret dreams, they give warnings to monarchs, um, and they gaze at the stars and interpret what those stars mean for the world around them. So these wise men come from the east um, because they see what? They see a star. Uh, so remember, <laughs> they are used to interpreting dreams and oracles and stars, which sounds kind of weird, kind of hokey. Like, they're the people who are talking about, like, sage burning and, like, auras, and, and you're kind of, like, backing away from them as they're talking. <laughs> you're, like, hoping you don't get seated next to one of them on a plane. Uh, but, <laughs> but there's just one historical caveat to that uh, that makes this actually not quite as hokey as it might appear at first glance. Uh, as it turns out, the Babylonians were the most prolific astronomers of the ancient world. And the reason we know this is because of a recent discovery back in 2016, I believe, this was covered in the New York Times, uh, they discovered a tablet um, in, um, from Babylon, and this tablet detailed a kind of um, pre-calculus. Um, if you math people can decipher that, hats off to you. But, <laughs> so they discover a kind of pre-calculus that the Babylonians were using to track the movement of the planet Jupiter. Why Jupiter? Because Jupiter was associated with their god, their pagan god, Marduk. And if they wanted to know what Marduk was doing in the world, they looked at Jupiter and where Jupiter was in relation to the other stars, in relation to the other planets. And they literally started calculating the speed of the movement. Now, why is this a discovery. Didn't we figure this out in like, I don't know, the 1500s or something like that? Didn't the Europeans figure that out? Europeans did figure that out, but apparently they were not the first. Somewhere between 350 BC and 50 BC, the Babylonians had figured this out, which meant they were way, way beyond, way beyond their time with the things that they were doing. Um, so around the time of Jesus' birth, a group of pagan astronomers and mystics and priests are gazing at the stars, and they notice something unusual. One theory is that they actually saw a star that literally emerges out of nowhere in the sky, and then they begin to follow that star. Second theory that's actually favored by um, N.T. Wright is that what they actually saw that year was Jupiter, Jupiter, this Jupiter, um, coinciding with another planet, Saturn. Now, Jupiter was, in addition to being associated with the Babylonian god Marduk, was also associated with kingly rule or royalty. Um, and Saturn, for whatever reason, don't ask me how they did this, but Saturn was associated with the Jews specifically because their Sabbath was on a Saturday. 
So when they are looking into the sky, trying to track the movements of the Babylonian god Marduk through Jupiter, and then they also see literally three times that year, they see Saturn coincide with Jupiter. They think a king is being born to the Jews, and it must mean something for us all the way over here in Babylon, Media, Persia. And that's all it takes for them. Literally, they put together a caravan, not just a couple of people, I mean a caravan big enough for them to travel safely. We're talking ammo, everything to be able to travel travel safely for thousands, thousands of, or hundreds of miles. Uh, I looked at this on a map. We did this last year too. Uh, the distance between what is now modern-day Iran and Jerusalem is something like 2,166 kilometers. Um, that would be 1,345 American distance units or miles. Uh, <laughs> so like kilometers. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> so um, it would take something like 440 hours to travel on foot between where Persia is and then to over where Jerusalem is. Even if you traveled eight hours a day, that would still take you about 55 days all because they see something unusual happening in the sky in the early early first century. And they want to know what it means for them. Not just so that they can fill their heads. I mean, they're really smart people, but not just so that they can fill their heads. They're trying to figure out who who is the star, who is the king, what does it mean for their people, but also what does it mean for our people that our planet is coinciding with this? And so they literally set out, they follow their curiosity all the way to where you might expect a king of the Jews to be born in the royal city in Jerusalem, the palace of Herod. And so they get to the palace of Herod and they begin to ask him, who has been born king of the Jews for we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. So Herod is another pivotal figure in our story. Uh, You might remember a lot about the story of Herod. Herod is actually, there's two things I want you to remember about Herod. Uh, First, Herod is a very, very savvy political leader. Uh, In fact, the reason he is king of the Jews is because he's very, very savvy politically. Uh, He managed to align himself with Mark Antony. Anybody remember Mark Antony, Cleopatra, that whole story? Uh, So he manages to align himself with Mark Antony, becomes his best friend because he thinks that's going to secure power for him. Uh, Well, Eventually, Mark Antony gets into a little bit of a spat with a guy named Octavian. Octavian and Mark Antony do not like each other at all. Nonetheless, Herod remains unbelievably loyal to Mark Antony until Mark Antony passes away, dies. Big story. You can go look it up. (laughs) Until Mark Antony dies. Uh, And then, in an act of such just... Gosh, it's, it's overwhelming to even think about. He literally throws himself at the feet of Octavian, and he says to Octavian, you know, remember how loyal I was to Mark Antony? I will be 10 times more loyal to you than I was to him. I will be 10 times more loyal to you. And this little act of, of humiliation that he displays before Octavian earns him the post of the king of the Jews. Uh, so, and ultimately, all these kings, I mean, underneath an emperor, like he's reporting to Octavian or Caesar Augustus, as you remember, him. Um, All these people are essentially puppet kings. Um, They report to Octavian. They exercise the rule of the emperor at the local level. The second thing I want you to remember about Herod, which is actually related to the first, uh, he is not a Jew of royal heritage. 
um, Herod is actually, um, his ancestors were the Edomites. And the Edomites are um, actually to the south, if we can get to the map. Uh, the Edomites are actually to the south of um, the land of God's people. Um, they fought against the Jews relentlessly for a very long time. Um, David fought against, Saul fought against them. David fought against them. Tons of people fight against them. Um, during the Maccabean period, they are actually forcibly converted to Judaism. Um, and that is kind of how we get Herod into the picture. Um, and in fact, Matthew's genealogy is a little tiny dig on this detail about who Herod is. Uh, you may have noticed this the first week when we covered this, but Matthew actually starts his genealogy not with Abraham, which would be the chronological order. He starts with David. Why? Because he wants to point out that the real king of the Jews is descended from the royal line of David. And that king is Christ, not Herod. Everybody knows this about Herod. Everyone knows that he is not a part of the royal lineage of, of David and therefore an illegitimate heir to the throne. Everyone knows it. And to say that it's an insecurity of Herod's would be an understatement. Um, and this is just speculation from my years of vast knowledge interacting with this group of creatures called humans, of which I am one. Um, but, but humans tend to have insecurities. We all have them. Humans have insecurities. And the thing about insecurities is that they, they tend to drive us in different ways, um, but we all have them. I remember talking to, this was years ago, I just started a new job, and I was telling an older, wiser friend of mine that my new boss was nowhere near as insecure as my old boss. And, uh, and she says to me, you might want to temper your enthusiasm, dear. Everyone has insecurities. You will see them soon enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> A couple of years later, um, I was um, running late for a meeting, and um, the meeting was in another department. They had offered up their conference room, and as it turns out, I get to the meeting. I'm the last person there. The only chair left is the chair at the head of the table. Um, so I sit down at this chair, and um, I eventually notice that as I'm sitting in this chair, my feet are swinging. <laughs> And it's kind of hard to feel like a grown-up in a meeting when your feet are swinging. So I'm trying to like lower the chair, and you can never find the, the like lever to lower a chair when you need to lower a chair. And so I finally say outside, outside or out loud in the room, does anybody know like how to lower the chair? And then the guy sitting next to me, who I was really good friends with, he leans over and he goes, that's the director's chair. He likes the chair to be taller than all the other chairs in the room. Don't lower it, or he'll think we did it on purpose. <laughs> Not kidding. <laughs> My very immature self in my mid-20s really wanted to lower that chair. Uh, <laughs> I still want to lower that chair. Uh, Herod is like that. Herod is the guy who needs his chair to be higher than all the other chairs in the room. Uh, now, if you know anything about insecurities, you know that they can drive the very best. I believe some of the best athletic feats, some of the best academic feats, some of the best professional and business feats we've ever seen have been driven by insecurity. And sometimes it's really good, but it can also drive some really terrible things. And we see that mixture, uh, that really awkward mixture, play out in the life of Herod. For instance, one of Herod's greatest achievements was an impressive renovation of the Second Temple. Uh, remember, he's savvy. He's very strategic. Um, he knows that everybody knows that he is not the legitimate heir of David's throne. And so he tries to basically prove his loyalty to the Jewish people by renovating the temple. Um, he expands it. Uh, this is a replica of the temple in Jerusalem, by the way. If you go, you should definitely go to the museum where they have a model of the whole entire old city. It'll help you with your sense of direction when you're walking around down there. I went at the end of, 11, of an 11-day 11 trip. I was very miffed by that. 
that. So, um, but he literally expands the base or the temple mount that the temple sits on. Uh, but he doesn't just make it bigger. Um, he employs thousands, and I do mean thousands, of artisans and masons and carpenters who could pay attention to the finer details of the temple because he doesn't want it to just be bigger than all the other temples. He wants it to be one of the most beautiful things. And it was recorded as one of the most beautiful temples in the region at that time. But Herod's insecurities also drove the very worst of his behavior as king of the Jews. He also built a temple to Caesar Augustus, a kind of weird mix of of imperial and, and religious adoration and worship. He executed members of the Sanhedrin who opposed him and replaced them with people who wouldn't question him. The Sanhedrin being the group of religious leaders and priests who would gather around to advise the people. He placed the Roman eagle, the symbol of Roman national pride, that was literally carried into battle um, by Roman soldiers. He placed the Roman eagle on the front of the temple um, at the entrance. Um, And when a group of young, fiery, zealous um, youths, as always they are, um, when they decide that they want to protect the pure worship of Yahweh, um, they remove the eagle, they destroy the eagle. Um, Herod sniffs out who exactly it was and has them burned alive. When Herod's brother-in-law became more popular than him, he suddenly drowned in a pool that archaeologists have just recently discovered is, I mean, less shallow than a kiddie pool. When he discovered that, or when he assumed that his wife, Miriam, uh, was cheating on him, his favorite wife, which is also weird, uh, when he discovered that she might have been cheating on him, he had her strangled. When he suspected two of his sons of plotting to take the throne from him, he had them executed. And then when he discovered that his third son actually hatched the plot so that he could get the throne, he had him executed as well. And on his deathbed, as he's dying, he thinks, gosh, people are probably going to rejoice when I die rather than mourn. He ordered the arrest of dozens of nobles and royal officials and ordered that on the day of his death they be executed so that the people would be guaranteed to mourn on his death day. Herod wasn't just insecure. He was paranoid, he was power hungry, and he was willing to use any violent means at his disposal to snuff out threats to his throne. And this Herod is sitting at home on a Saturday morning, drinking his coffee, catching up on the Wall Street Journal, or maybe listening to his favorite podcast, and and word comes to him that there is a motorcade from Babylon or Persia or somewhere in the east full of pagan priests and astronomers and mystics, and they want to pay homage, as is customary between nations. They want to pay homage to the king that has been born to the Jews. There's just one problem. Herod is reasonably sure that he and any of his wives have not given birth to a baby recently, which must mean that this baby that even the Persians knew about as king of the Jews is coming from somewhere beyond the palace. And suddenly, all of the questions that usually swirl around in Herod's head around who is he and, and what kind of king is he and is he a pagan? Is he, sorry, is he, is he a, a puppet king to Octavian? Is he the real king of the Jews? Um, he's, who's plotting against me this week? Who do I have to take out this week? Who do I have to execute this week? How do I protect my throne this week? Suddenly all of those questions come swirling back into Herod's head and the text says he is troubled. He is troubled, he is disturbed, he's stirred, he's shaken, he's unsettled, he is thrown into confusion. How do I protect my throne, Herod wonders. 
And so then he assembles his chief priests and scribes, and he begins to inquire of them where exactly is the Christ to be born, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Uh, Where is this person to be born? Now, just like the pagan priests and the mystics and the astronomers are accustomed to studying the stars to get a sense of what God, even their pagan God, is doing in the world and, and what his manifestation looks like, the chief priests and the scribes are used to looking not at the stars to figure out what God is doing, but at the scriptures. They are accustomed to opening the scriptures to figure out who God is and what God is doing in the world and what that means for who they are in the world. The chief priests and the scribes are the people who basically are able to unfold for us exactly what it is that's happening in our story. And and (laughs) I find it impressive what Matthew is doing because what he actually says is, There's this group of pagan priests and mystics and astronomers who are, they're not idiots. They are absolutely brilliant. They have figured out things that other people wouldn't discover for literally hundreds of years later. And they're geniuses at understanding the stars and the planets and the happenings in space. And yet, and yet, as it turns out, they still need someone to open the scriptures to help them understand what it all means. They still need the scriptures to figure out what it is that they're seeing. They can observe it, they can calculate it, they can map it out, they can draw it on tablets, but they don't entirely know what it means until someone opens the scriptures to point them the rest of the way. Paul talks about this in Romans when he says, we're supposed to be able to look at creation. And we're supposed to be able to look at the wonder and the beauty of creation to understand something about God's attributes, God's essence, God's glory, God's majesty. I mean, we get this. I mean, I've watched your pictures on Facebook when you go on vacation, and they are absolutely beautiful. Some of the places that, you know, we have some really adventurous people in our church. Uh, recently, Abby Black went to, our kids director, went to Bryce Canyon. And this is a picture from her iPhone that she took from within a cavern. Um, absolutely beautiful. Um, recently, Carrie Searveld, who is also here at South Harbor, she went to Yosemite um, and snapped this picture as well. Just breathtaking view, breathtaking view. Um, recently, I was in Washington State um, on Lake Perfection. That's literally what it's called, Lake Perfection. <laughs> and it, it is perfection. I wish I were doing something more majestic when I took this picture. I was just like scarfing down a peanut butter and jelly sandwich because I was really hungry. <laughs> um, so uh, Banff, uh, Lake Moraine, this is the trip that I really wanted to take two years ago. I will get there as soon as things calm down. Um, and then a couple of folks from our church, actually the Weiringas who lit the candle last week, uh, they made it over to Alaska. They got some really great shots. This is not one of theirs, but um, this is the national park that they were able to visit. Just breathtaking view, breathtaking view, mountains, lakes. Um, we know just instinctively that when we're looking at creation, we're looking at the beauty of creation, that it's supposed to, it's telling us something. It's telling us something. But Paul says, because of sin and brokenness, we don't always pick up what creation is saying. We don't exactly understand what creation is communicating to us about who God is and what he's up to. It's been a beautiful day at Lake Michigan. We hike a beautiful trail. We see a beautiful sunset, and yet something something gets lost in translation. 
John Calvin picks up on this second generation reformer from the 16th century, and he gives it a helpful name. He says um, that revelation, God's revelation, um, is like a set of eyeglasses. He calls them spectacles of faith. And when we put these eyeglasses on, they actually help to focus our eyes and make bigger the thing that God wants us to perceive from creation. They allow us to be able to read something from creation so that we really do pick up that through this very finite creation, um, that it's telling us something about the God who is even more, even more majestic than the mountains that we see, even more um, beautiful than the lakes that we see, like even more incredible than the things that we are seeing in front of us, which is why, which is why the pagan priests and mystics and astronomers um, interpretation kind of falls short. Like all they know, all they know is that there is a king to be born who's supposed to be king of the Jews, and it kind of sort of means something for the rest of us, but they don't quite have the whole picture filled in. They actually need the chief priests and the scribes to get them the rest of the way. And they show up, and there's no baby in the palace. And Herod is befuddled, as befuddled as they are. And so he assembles his chief priests and scribes. Uh, where is the Christ to be born? Where will, where will the Messiah be from? And the chief priests and scribes say to Herod, um, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people." So without missing a beat, the chief priests and the scribes say to Herod, the king is to be born in Bethlehem. But what they do is they kind of splice together two passages from the Old Testament to form this one statement uh, back to Herod. Uh, the first um, kind of similar language that we find of this is actually in 2 Samuel chapter 5. It's the moment when all of the people of Israel come to King David in Hebron. Uh, this is when David is just king over Judah. And the people come to him in Hebron and they say, we don't want you to just be king over Judah. We actually want you to be king over all of Israel. They literally come to Hebron to make David their king for the entirety of the kingdom. But the second place where they pull this from is from the prophecy of a prophet named Micah. Micah prophesies alongside Isaiah um, just before the exile. Um, he prophesies about the coming destruction of the exile, both to the north and to the south. Um, but he also prophesies about the restoration of Israel, um, which the people are still waiting for. And so they put these two, these kind of two sets of language together, and it becomes what they say back to Herod. Um, but from... Where is it? O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who won't just rule our people, but will also shepherd our people. Herod, remember, is very paranoid and insecure. And so these words become his worst nightmare, his absolute worst nightmare, because what he hears is there's a ruler coming out of Bethlehem, and he is the true king descended from the line of David, and he won't be a puppet king like me to the Roman Empire. He's the true shepherd who will rally, who the people themselves will rally to place as king. They will anoint him king over me. The questions start to consume Herod. But rather than press into those questions, and we've talked about this before in terms of Kairos moments, like there are these moments that happen, rather than press into that moment to discover maybe what God is trying to say to Herod about himself or the way that he leads, or, or maybe what God is trying to say to Herod about God, or maybe what God is trying to say to Herod about what is happening in the world. Rather than press into those questions, Herod does what he always does. He starts hatching a plan 
to execute the threat. He starts hatching a plan to protect his throne. He summons the wise men secretly, and he ascertains from them what time the star had appeared to them. And they sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may go and worship him. And at that, the pagan priests and mystics and astronomers set out to Bethlehem. And when they find the Christ child, they literally, the text says, they rejoice um, exceedingly with great joy. So you do not have to be a Greek Bible scholar uh, to, to notice the repetition there. They rejoice with great joy uh, at what they see because the star suddenly reappears over where the Christ child is in Bethlehem. Everything comes together. The star, the child, the place, that this is the Christ. Like, this is this is the king who is to be born king of the Jews. Now, they don't know what it means yet. They don't. But what they do know is that this is the king that they set out looking for. And so they rejoice. And one artist actually captures this moment well, uh, Paul Peter Rubin, uh, in the seven, early 17th century. Uh, 1609 to 1629 is not his years of life. Um, he was a perfectionist. He actually worked on the painting and then kept reworking it until 1629. But, but he paints this picture of, I love the way he captures it, of the wise men adoring Christ. But then he opens up the heavens and allows you to just get a glimpse of the angels joining their voices with this group of pagan priests and astronomers and mystics. Um, it's, it's beautiful and it's absolutely incredible. Um, but they don't just rejoice. They literally fall down and they worship the Christ child. They offer gifts that are customary for a king, um, gold, a precious metal, frankincense, a perfume, and myrrh, uh, myrrh which is used to anoint a king. They bring the, they bring the very gift for Christ's eventual anointing. And then filled with the wisdom of God, they head home without actually telling Herod where they went. So I'm just going to tie some loose threads together here um, as we close. We encounter Herod in our text, and Herod um, essentially hears of the birth of Messiah and the same questions that have plagued him and haunted him and taunted him throughout his entire career as king of the Jews come flooding back into his mind. I mean, he has a chance to press into those questions, but he doesn't. I mean, he has a chance to discover something more about God or himself, but he doesn't. Instead, because his instincts have been formed by fear and paranoia and violence, he does what he always does. He looks for a way to execute the threat because in his mind, the birth of the Messiah is a threat to him. Now, in hindsight, some 2,000 years later, that actually seems kind of ridiculous. Because as it turns out, Christ doesn't want Herod's paltry throne. Caesar's throne is too small for Christ. Christ's throne is the entirety of creation that was made at the command of his voice. God doesn't want Herod's throne. But that doesn't stop him from spiraling, Herod from spiraling out of control over the possibility that someone is trying to ruin him or take something away from him. You might say that the path that Herod always chooses, <coughs> the way of Herod, is the way of paranoia and violence and assuming the very worst of other people and assuming the very worst of the situations that he finds himself in, silencing the voices of people who disagree with him, surrounding himself with people who think the way he does, tells them what he wants to hear, and does exactly what he tells them to do. The way of outright executing anyone who threatens him. 
The Magi, on the other hand, notice something different in the stars that they are so accustomed to studying. And it has some implications for where they are, literally 1,300 miles away. It has something to do with, with the way that the world will continue, and they don't quite know what it is, but for whatever reason, they don't interpret it as a threat. Instead, they fall down and adore this little baby king in a manger. And they don't just fall down and adore him, they bring him gifts to help celebrate his anointing as king. They don't bring a sophisticated question to that manger. They just want to know who he is and what this all means for them. But it's where God begins to do his work in them. The way of the Magi, you might say, is the way of curiosity and wonder and awe. And dare I say, faith not in what they will discover, but in the fact that they will discover something. Because someone the God of the universe, which they, they're misguided about. They don't quite know who that is yet. But someone wants them to know something of who he is. And so they trust that they will discover if they just keep asking questions, if they just keep following curiosity, if they just keep following wonder into that thing, whatever it is. And then there's the chief priests and the scribes who admittedly don't get a lot of airtime in our story. Um, they have spent their lives studying the scriptures to discern God's activity in the world around them. And like everyone else in Jerusalem, they hear about this caravan of pagan priests and mystics and astronomers inquiring about the birth of the king of the Jews. And they're summoned by King Herod himself to help him understand where exactly is the Messiah to be born. Uh, this is probably the first century version of this meeting could have been an email because without missing a beat, without having to Google it without having to figure anything out, they literally say back to Herod, oh, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, who's going to change everything and restore Israel and potentially even the whole world, oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And then they just go to lunch. I mean, literally, they just go to lunch. Like Matthew's account of this story does not record a single ounce of curiosity, wonder, awe, no questions, no nothing, no nothing from the Magi. They literally come into the story and advise everyone else in the story, and they themselves just kind of check out. This is astounding, because everyone else in the story is either deeply disturbed and troubled and unsettled by the birth of Christ, or moved to pure ecstatic joy at the birth of Christ. And the people who literally sit before the face of God in the temple and sit before the face of God in the scriptures have nothing to offer but apathy, and maybe even a little bit of boredom at the whole thing. The way of the chief priest, you might say, is the way of apathy. As everyone else around them is worked into an outright frenzy, they just kind of treat the day like it's nothing special at all. Today, we marked faith as part of our Advent moment Today's text, I think, encourages us to think of faith not just as a set of beliefs that are in our heads or, or not just as a thing that we study, um, but faith as, um, as kind of like a holy curiosity. Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas, talks about faith as a virtue. Uh, faith, hope, and love are virtues. Uh, and virtues, even when they're infused by God, are, are virtues, like they're habits. Like we put them on, they become a part of us, they begin to form our instincts. Uh, faith is not just something that we believe, Faith is a habit. Faith is, is a holy curiosity um, about the God that we can literally discover endlessly. 
If God really is infinite, we can discover God in, in, like infinitely. Um, at Christmas, we get to lean in with holy curiosity into a story that admittedly um, we all know pretty well, even if we're not practicing Christians. We know that story really well. We know the major points of it. Um, and it can be kind of hard to, to get really excited about it um, amidst all the errands and the Christmas tunes and the Christmas movies and the decorations. Admittedly, Die Hard might seem like a more compelling Christmas story, right? <laughs> Especially when Sergeant Al Powell appears to John McClane for the first time. <laughs> but allow a group of pagan mystics and priests and astronomers to just stir a little bit of wonder and awe within us this season by their example. Um, Because what they travel to see and what we have inherited and get to share with the world is the story of the God who would stop at nothing, at nothing, to enter into the very worst of stories. And the God who would stop at nothing to take on flesh, to rescue and redeem his people from sin and death. We get to inherit and tell the story to other people of the God who literally sculpted the mountains and those glacial lakes that we love to see, and yet was born in a filthy manger. And ultimately, that is the story of the God who is capable of not just handling our deepest or even our scariest questions, but the God who is capable of entering into those questions and entering into life circumstances so that through those questions, we might discover something new about who he is, what he's doing in our world, and what he's doing within us. If we have the faith to keep pressing in and to keep asking questions. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for not being the God of our imaginations, but being the God who is bigger than we could ever imagine or think or perceive. And because of that, we are always on a journey, being comforted by what we know of you, by what has been revealed of you, by what has been taught of you, but also getting to discover you anew every single day if we stay attuned to your voice. Thank you for what you show us. Thank you for what you have shown us. Thank you for what you will continue to show us as you continue to lead us into all truth by your Holy Spirit. And thank you for the story that we get to not just proclaim, but also live. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.